Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I have managed to get Alina on a boaty podcast, but there's a reason that she's on a boaty podcast. It's because it's exciting boaty stuff, isn't it, Alina? It's exciting. It's not typical Chris boaty stuff. (laughs) Are you saying that Chris's boaty stuff is dull? Never. I mean, (laughs) take it as you please by the tone of my voice. Okay. Pre-dreadnoughts in the late Victorian era doesn't float your boat then? Uh, no, nothing like that floats my boat. Thank you very much. But this does, <laughs> okay, funnily enough. Ahead. So we've got Marcus Redeker, who's an award-winning historian and writer who specialised in maritime history. And he's written several books, including Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates in the Golden Age, and The Slavery Ship, A Human History. We also have, because we don't have just one guest, we have two guests. Our second guest is David Lester, who is an author, artist, and graphic novelist, whose historical graphic novels include... Profit Against Slavery and The Listener. They are both here to talk about their forthcoming book, Under the Banner of King Death, which is a graphic novel examining the heyday of Atlantic piracy. Gentlemen, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Alina. I just have to say, firstly, we've had to fangirl for Kate Jameson to Marcus since he arrived because she's so excited um, that we're interviewing him. And secondly, we need to apologise to David because he's in Vancouver and it's seven o'clock in the morning. Um, So welcome, guys, and thank you for finding a spot with us, despite all of our uh, challenges with timing. We tend to think of pirates, when I say heyday of British pirates, I'm thinking like Charles II and that era, but this is not that, is it? This is, we're sort of 50 years ahead of that. So how prevalent is piracy in the 1720s? Well, Alex, the it, it, the golden age of piracy consists of three distinct generations of pirates. So in the 1660s and 1670s, we have uh, the buccaneers of the Caribbean, uh, epitomized, I think, by Henry Morgan, who leads a lot of attacks on the Spanish main. This is Captain Morgan of the rum, right? Right. Yes, that is the one and the same Captain Morgan. The second generation is epitomized by William Kidd, Captain Kidd. This is in the 1690s. Uh, another famous pirate from that era is Henry Avery, who had one of the most spectacular captures of um, prize ships ever and escaped with uh, without ever being rediscovered. 
Um, but this is the period, the 1690s, when the ruling class of Great Britain begins to turn against piracy. Henry Morgan's piracies advantaged the British Empire, the English Empire at that time. But now they see that piracy is interfering with trade. So the third generation of pirates is the one that David and I have uh, written about in uh, under the banner of King Death. They are active uh, in the 17-teens and the 1720s. And what's really interesting about them is that this is the point at which the common, ordinary working sailors get control of the enterprise of piracy. And they they capture these the ships. The ship is the most sophisticated piece of technology of the day. And they, they capture these ships and they create a crisis, a major crisis in the global trading system that uh, Britain has built. And the response by the British ruling class is to hang these pirates in the hundreds and to eliminate this thing that is interfering with their new global empire. So we're talking about a graphic novel. We've got history. Great, fantastic. Love it. However, David is here also with us, who is the artist, who must have, this must have been your dream job here to actually draw pirates. <laughs> well, I wasn't uh, sure. Uh, um, I never actually envisioned myself uh, doing pirates. I've done a lot of uh, gritty social justice histories. And uh, I think the pirates fit into that category uh, in terms of their fight for a better world. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I uh, it was a world that I didn't entirely know. And so I had to do a lot of research on it. In terms of especially visually, uh, what did pirates, uh, you know, what or what did people in the 18th century wear? What did they drink uh, alcohol? What kind of pipes did they smoke? Uh, what were their shoes like? What were their hats like? Uh, um, and of course, you have to do it when you're doing a book like this. You have to do it from the working class to the ruling class. You have to have a grasp of um, of, of what you're going to depict. And hopefully it's a, as authentic as you can. And, and of course, the basic thing of what did sailors look like? And uh, and because uh, I like to remind people, like 300 years ago, we did not have photography. So the visual representations are are down to either uh, crude drawings that maybe people did as sketches or very sophisticated um, etchings like Hogarth had done of uh, of people in that time period. And so you search as a, an artist for what you can find in terms in terms of any kind of reference like that. And also, how did people dance? How did they what songs did they sing? And, uh, and ultimately what, uh, how did people talk, uh, again from the working class to the ruling class? And so that was a source of debate in creating the script for the book is how much should we be authentic to the time period, knowing that the reader may well, uh, not understand the language being used at the time. So, uh, after much discussion, we ended up with a bit of a compromise where we would give a sense of the, uh, of how speak people spoke at the time. And the main thing is you do not want to sound modern. You, you want, you know, to take people back 300 years ago and, uh, and immerse them in, in with the book, it, uh, in that way, um, to feel they're part of that time period and, uh, and so for me, I use a lot of, um, you know, rough kind of drawing and uh, in order to kind of tell a gritty story. And I feel like the, the drawings should match the content of the book. And, and it shouldn't just be, oh, I'm going to draw in a cartoony style that is modern. I wanted it to look as rough 
as the history that I'm depicting. So let's start talking then about um, the kind of material that you were given to work with by our historian in the room. So it's really interesting that I had never considered like an evolution in types of piracy. I always just thought pirates were pirates and that was it. So let's talk about this third phase that you were talking about. So what are the conditions like for an everyday sailor on a merchant, slaving or naval vessel at the time? Well, this was a period in which the conditions were uh, especially bad because the the third generation of pirates this uh this emerges in the aftermath of a war the war of spanish succession which uh, ended in 1713 which resulted in an international depression it resulted in sailors losing their jobs and for those sailors who still managed to maintain their jobs the working conditions uh plummeted People were built of their wages by these uh, very powerful captains. Uh, the food they were fed on board the ships uh, was really poor in quality. Uh, the joke was that the bread on a merchant ship could walk around by itself because it had so much vermin in it. Uh, <laughs> and maybe most importantly, this was a period in which ship captains had the uh, total power to discipline the crew using the cat and nine tails. So floggings were very common in this era. And this combination of factors, the sheer difficulty of the life of the common sailor, predisposed those workers to make the decision to become pirates, where they would be free to organize the ship in any way they wanted. So they they abolished the wage and made themselves risk-sharing partners. They limited the captain's ability to punish the crew. They voted on the captain. So they created a very democratic and egalitarian social order. And I think in some ways, this was kind of a utopia for the common working sailor. Um, but the fascinating thing is that this history is, is significant in its own right, but David faced the challenge of translating this history into images. Like, how do you show the working conditions? How do you show people going through the process of deciding to become a pirate? So I think this is a, this is a very important thing that he's done in imagining and, and visualizing this social world. In the graphic novel, you have a you've got basically you've got a mutiny, which is um not something very easy to illustrate. So I've got a two part question. My first question goes to Marcus. So Marcus, first of all, um how how common are these sorts of incidents? And David, how did you go about illustrating these mutinies? Well, in this period that I've mentioned, right after the War of Spanish Succession, there is a massive spike in the number of mutinies. The discontentment aboard the ships is so great. Uh, the violence is so great. It becomes, these ships become like floating powder kegs. Uh, and so what I was actually able to, to chart over time the number of mutinies throughout the first half of the 18th century. And it's in this period when, uh, when they really do explode and become quite commonplace. And in a lot of those mutinies, not all of them, but in a lot of those mutinies, the, the, the sailors, the rebellious sailors decide to capture the ship and set up as pirates. So, uh, so David, over to you as to how you represent that complicated process. Uh, well, as, as an artist, the, 
the the easy and the exciting part of um, uh, drawing a particular piece of history is is when it becomes um, uh, goes into the category of almost like a revolution, and so you have the battle, the physical battle, and and so that's great for an artist because it's not uh, cerebral; it's just um, you know depicting people fighting and and the uh, visceral factor of blood splattered, and so in that way, you as an artist, you can I get the watercolor paint out, and I have different methods of splattering it onto the page, onto the drawings, and um, and you're kind of free to um, basically defy even uh, the sense of what normal drawings are. And so in my case, I often overlay drawings on top of each other. I cut drawings up in order to create a sense of movement to slow the reader down. So they have to look at, in a case of just one drawing, I cut it up in three and they have to look at three little drawings in it. It is a way of trying to give more a more cinematic approach to comics but also to play with the medium of comics um, in terms of telling a, a sequential story. And, uh, and so, so that's the sort of um, the exciting part and the tougher part is to depict actual social change where the pirates reach this point, they've taken over the ship. Now what? And so how do you depict the idea of democracy in action in terms of voting? Cause that seems like a very dry thing. And, 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 and so, how do you do that when you, you you don't have a film? You have to do it with a series of drawings, and and part of that is to just let the drawings speak, let show the people uh, talking, voting, um, show their faces, their their excitement about what this new world is that they've created. And um, I felt it was really important to really spend a lot of time trying to get that right in order to not sort of just go to the next bit of action and the next bit of battles between ships. And um, and you have people signing their names to to the declaration of uh, of principles for what they would be the democracy they were treating uh, creating on on ship. And so um, so that's all um, somewhat difficult to do. But I feel like with the book, we tried to um, accomplish that. And I, and I feel like we did, as well as putting the little touches on that, um, you know, ships were had cockroaches everywhere. So I have cockroaches crawling up the page. I have weevils, which was in their food. And that's kind of, they're going along there. I have rats uh, all over the place. So you want also to give the reader a sense of that um, dynamic. This was not just a sterilized uh, life on board a ship. This was a living, <laughs> living creature, if, if you want to call it that. And, um, and so even though these little things are just side points to it, they're the touches that I think, um make it a visceral experience for the reader it's so cool i just i love what you mentioned that i just want to go back to marcus uh, because you mentioned social change and the fact that yeah i mean it would be grand wouldn't it to just draw loads of boats and loads of battles and action in every scene but you do have nuances of history to tell in this so marcus how do you how does piracy in this period affect the british and other seagoing european economies well, in this third generation, in the 17-teens and 1720s, uh, I estimated in Villains of All Nations that the pirates captured somewhere around 5,000 merchant vessels. That is a massive number of ships. And so you can just begin to imagine the disruption to the new trading system that has been built, especially, I would emphasize, the, the so-called triangular trade linking Europe to West Africa, to the Caribbean and North America, 
Pirates had a special impact on the slave trade because they, they attacked slave ships on their way to West Africa before they had loaded uh, enslaved people because they liked those ships. They were big enough to hold a large crew. They were relatively fast. And so merchants in London began to complain to the British Parliament that these pirates were really destroying one of the most lucrative kinds of commerce uh, to be found anywhere. And that was the slave trade, which was uh, essential to the building of the plantation system of the Americas and ultimately to the building of global capitalism. So the pirates were in a very strategic position to do great damage to the economy of uh, not just Britain, but the entire Atlantic economy. And uh, and I do think this is a challenge for David and myself in terms of how do you represent uh, that challenge? And the way we chose to do that, and perhaps David can expand upon this, is that we created a part of the story in which these these wealthy merchants decide to send a pirate hunter after uh, the the crew of the night rambler so you get you get the view from above about the chaos that pirates are causing as well as the view from below about how these sailors are trying to build a better life for themselves part of uh, making this book is um, in previous books i've done things like create uh, clay heads of the characters as a means of drawing uh, a figure from 360 and and also controlling the light source with a flashlight um, and I've built sets, uh, almost like film sets, as a means of drawing to scale um, a, a way of depicting the story, because in the course of a, a hundred or so pages, that's a lot of drawing to do. And in this book, there's a, about uh, 700 drawings to make this book. And in this case, one of the main characters was the uh, was an 18th century galleon. And so I decided to build one um, with, you know, I ordered a model kit and stuff like that and but it's it's to scale and it's an extremely complicated process and i had to enlist my partner wendy to uh help me with this and luckily you know i hadn't built one since i was 10 and she um she always wanted to build one but because of gender roles she was uh unable to do that and so she got to fulfill her dream of of building a model and um and so it took us seven months and in the equivalent of that i realized we could have sailed in the 18th century across the atlantic um so the ship was an important part of um a part of the story and uh and uh and and it it plays the role because we have the ship the ruling class has their ships that they're coming to uh get the pirates and and the pirates have their ships that they've um you know commandeered and so the battle is set up between in a class battle really and uh and so the ship plays an important role in the depiction of it and because as an artist you're always thinking of how do you depict the history um and not just tell it from a, a sterile point of view and the ship was great because the ships you know they're always in movement generally and and they have the master up or down and so um you know that was part of this process, and uh, and it was uh, invaluable to have this ship as kind of the anchor to the story, and in telling this kind of class history. You've clearly taken the history so seriously as the artist on that, and I want to ask both of you um, 
obviously as a historian, Marcus, but also as an artist, David, you mentioned gender roles. There are women in this. Um, how common is it to have women aboard as pirates or sailors, Marcus? But David as well, are there any concerns for you about stereotypes and falling into stereotypes of portraying women? Or were you particularly alert to how you styled the women that appear in the graphic novel? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The simple answer to your question, Alex, is that we have no idea how many women were at sea because most of them disguised themselves as men and worked at sea for long periods of time without ever being found out. Uh, if you had asked this question, uh, I'd say 25, 30 years ago, the answer, how many women actually went to sea uh, as sailors or pirates, the answer would have been none. But now we know that there were hundreds, if not thousands uh, some scholars of the uh, Dutch East India Company found a huge number of women who had gone to sea on uh, on their ships. So, so it's a challenge to try to figure out exactly how many people were, uh, how many women were on board. Now, in the golden age of piracy, in this third generation, the 17 teens and 20s, uh, I found four. I suspect the actual number was probably many, many times that. But two of them, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, were actually quite famous in their own day. In other words, they were very well known. They were written about in London, in the colonies. Uh, these women pirates were were quite famous. Anne Bonny is uh, was a, a, a wild and ferocious redhead who uh, actually scared her fellow male pirates. Uh, she was uh, quite a tough character, uh, but but these uh, th these women actually played a very important role in showing that women too could find freedom under the black flag. That this was a, that there was a kind of symbolism to this. They were challenging, uh, you know, the very heavy masculine gender roles of seafaring, uh, and they challenged it very successfully. Um, in order to answer that question, I. I, I should go back to explain how the script was written. And uh, 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 in the beginning, uh, the book is based on Marcus's book, Villains of All Nations, but he had written uh, what we might call a treatment, uh, an outline of the story. And from there, I took that and wrote a script, much like a film script. So it's all broken down into scenes, numbered scenes, with each uh, one beginning with a description of whether it's you know daytime, nighttime, on sea, on land what characters are involved, and then each character's dialogue is written out. 
Um, so that was the process. And then I would give the draft to Marcus and Paul Buell, and they would give their changes. And we went back and forth like that over the period of about three months. And um, so, you know, one of the challenges was how to portray um, the main character, uh, Mary Reed, in the in the in the book, because she starts off, she's dressed as a man to um, to take her role as a, as a as sailor and as a pirate on in the story. And then at certain point, she does uh, reveal herself to the crew. And that was um, a tricky thing to as to how you would do that, um, visually represent that um, and the reactions of the crew to to her unveiling of of who she really was. And uh, and part of, you know, going for uh, how one might portray that was uh, I one of the process of the script is that eventually I got my partner, Wendy, and I, we acted out the script and uh, we each had our parts. And uh, and that was really instructive to read text out loud for the sense of did it flow? Did it uh, seem authentic in terms of people's relationships? And um, also in terms of the unveiling of who she was to the crew. And so my partner, Wendy, uh, gave me very valuable kind of um uh comments on that and uh and so that helped with the idea of how we would present this in a way that um had uh that passed you know a, te- a test of whether it was uh plausible or realistic enough in just in terms of human human beings and uh and so so again that reading out loud of the script was was part of this process so every graphic novel has to have its celebrity let's go with the word celebrity which in your graphic novel is charles bowles aka black bart who has been on our podcast before uh not the first time so talk us a little bit about who he was first of all to marcus and then um david tell us a little bit how you managed to portray him okay black bart roberts is uh the most successful pirate in this uh uh, early 18th century generation. He captured over 400 ships. He, uh, was, a he had a fascinating kind of power. He had an entire consort of pirate ships. There were several ships that sailed with him. He was an extremely uh, formidable force. He was the one that the British merchants went after. He was, uh, causing all kinds of problems in the slave trade and his death in battle. In 1722, you could regard as a real turning point in, in this, uh, in, in the history of piracy because, uh, after Black Bart Roberts was, was killed and after 52 of his crew members were taken ashore, uh, in Africa and hanged, uh, that really was kind of the beginning of the end. It would take a few more years for it to play out. But the great thing about Black Bart or one of the many great things was he had on board his ship a special uh, occupation, which he called the dispenser of justice, which meant that when they captured a prize vessel, uh, the pirate crew would line up the sailors of that prize vessel and ask them, how does your captain treat you? And if those sailors complained that the pirate, that the captain was, uh, was vicious, that he cheated them of their wages, that he flogged them, uh, that captain was in a lot of trouble. So Black Bart had a kind of avenger mentality for the common sailor. The other thing about Black Bart is that he was a, a bit of a dandy. 
he he really uh, dressed very well. He had a bright red feather in his cap. So we thought he was a, a, a great figure to include. But he's he is kind of a cameo in our story, isn't he, David? He, he he comes in as like the most successful of them all to talk to this pirate crew that we've been following uh, on the Night Rambler. Yeah, he was actually the most um, kind of fun to portray, even though he's in there relatively briefly, because it, uh, in my research of him, it's like the the pictorial uh, um, uh, evidence that we have is is with the feather and the cap and a kind of very ornate outfit. He was he was um, definitely there's a flamboyance to him, and unusually, um, and Marcus can correct me if I'm wrong, but he 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 seemed like he preferred to drink tea um, as opposed to all the drams and the rum and everything and so um that was kind of different because every the rest of the book is pretty rough and uh uh aside from the you know the uh, ruling class depicting the ruling class um when you're depicting the pirates it was pretty kind of the same same in the sense of you know they i don't think they were so concerned about their appearance but uh, black bart certainly seemed to be and so there was a kind of a, an elegance to him that was actually uh, really refreshing to draw and so that was uh that was his his yeah his cameo was um to me a memorable part of the book see in my head now i'm just thinking of dustin hoffman in hook <laughs> <laughs> um okay i really want to know so you're talking about we talked about sort of social things and how you portray them but also things that are even more sort of vague in terms of pinning them down and drawing a picture of them or writing about them or getting them into stories so notions of freedom and self-determination and do they catch on in this era Marcus and you mentioned the treatment of of captains and officers and how they treat their crews I mean is are we seeing an evolution here with how people are treated at sea and and how do you draw that? Yeah, good questions. Um, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I should say that the ideas and practices of democracy and equality that, that we have uh, treated in this book do have a very long afterlife and are connected, for example, to the uh, American Revolution. Some of the founding ideals of the United States actually have specific linkages to sailors and pirates and the practices that they uh, pioneered on board their ships. So I think uh, there is a, an important story here. And I just might mention that the next graphic novel that David and I are doing is about a, a major uprising in New York City in 1741, in which uh, John Gwynn, the pirate who is the sort of lead figure in uh, uh, Under the Banner of King Death, comes back as the leader of a, an Afro-Irish conspiracy to capture the city. So we will, in our next book, talk about the continuity of these radical ideas further forward into the 18th century. Uh, the, your, your, your question about did things change over time? Uh, no. Uh, captains did not treat their crews any better. Uh, that's because piracy was put down with great violence, these mass executions that I've talked about. If you had sailed into practically any Atlantic port in the 1720s, you would have seen the corpses of pirates uh, dangling there in uh, in gibbets. Uh, 
uh, in chains. And we do have actually a very powerful image of that that David has drawn, very important uh, to the book. So pirates would frequently use their last statements, usually on the gallows, to to offer a criticism of the way ship captains treated their crews. And they basically would say, and we begin the book this way, uh, if you don't treat us better, we're all going to turn pirates and we're going to fight back. So this becomes part of the the ethos of pirates, kind of who they were. This is part of their social conscience. This is part of their uh, image of a better world, fighting back against uh, this unjust authority. Okay, David, previously you mentioned crude drawings of pirates. I'm actually, to be honest, I wanted to bring that up a lot earlier, so I'm quite excited to get to bring this up now, only because I also want to see these images of these crude drawings, so I'm getting overly excited just over crude drawings. Um, sorry, let's get actually back to the question that I want to ask you. So um, the images of pirates have obviously changed, or haven't they changed, over the past 300 years through popular media and fiction. And has that affected it? I mean, how did you find challenges in actually drawing these and finding the right sorts of methods and the right sorts of depictions? Where did you go with this? You could have gone left, right, centre, behind, and then all the way around again, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of, of course, I had to go back uh, to find whatever I could from 300 years ago during the time of pirates. Um, and uh, there are some, you know, depictions of them that done, done by a peer, uh, by what I would maybe call non-artists. And then there are the um, the more sophisticated, stylized versions of pirates um, and a bit fanciful, perhaps. It's unclear whether it's really the, that's really the way they look. Uh, like there's a couple uh, there's one of mary reed and and um uh, y- you know uh, so you took it i took it with a grain of salt and there are no as, as far as i'm aware of uh, paintings of pirates um so we rely on whatever etchings there were at the time but then you know we go back uh we go forward i should say to the 20th century and we see how pirates were depicted in hollywood in the 20s and 30s and 50s. And when television came in, in the 50s, there was a series uh, 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 on depicting pirates. On And uh, there was also perhaps the best uh, depiction was in comic books in the 50s by EC Comics. They had a series called Piracy, beautifully done color work, uh, and perhaps the most honest in depicting the lives of, of, uh, of pirates. Uh, and the and the thread that kind of runs through it all is I feel a sense of the portrayal of them is one of uh, admiration to a degree of uh, positiveness about the pirate as rebel. And it feels like that is even if the depictions are wrong in terms of the history, the idea that these these are admirable people, I, I feel that that comes through through the depiction. And so as an artist, you have, again, as I said, no photographic evidence you just have to rely on these sources. And I I had to take a little bit from all of them in order to create my own version of it. So, you know, this is this is what you do as an artist. You are uh creating a representation. And um it is from you as as you know how you feel it's most honestly uh possible to do. Um but uh you know, that's what I, that's what I went for. So there's certain kind of things of how they looked and they wore scarves or they, they had, uh, you know, striped, uh, stripes were part of their outfit in terms of, of sailors. But, uh, you know, there's more depictions of the ruling class 
And so that was much easier to depict how they probably actually look because there are portraits of them. Um, and uh, and so that was part of the process of, of trying to draw a book like this. It's very complicated. And uh, and you you hope you get it as right as possible. But you hope that the intentions are 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 accurate and that the history is accurate. Well, I mean, one of the great things about this collaboration is that uh, David uh, reads the history and respects the history, and that is really crucial. Uh, he does his own research. He looks into the material culture of the age, as he's already mentioned, how people looked, how people dressed. Um, he then begins to draw people, but then he's working with me, and I've been studying this time period for 40 years. So there's this interplay between the historical knowledge and the artistic production, which I think is really important to this uh, this kind of work. So am I going to be disappointed that they're all not going to look like Jack Sparrow? <laughs> you know, they, they, they're much cooler than Jack Sparrow. This is, a case, this is a case where the actual history is much better than the Hollywood fantasy. Okay. I just want to finish off, and I suspect this is one for Marcus mainly. Um, I want to ask, you've mentioned sort of social change and what you're going on to next and, and how it ties in with um historical events like pirates are fun everyone loves a pirate everyone likes reading about pirates people like dressing up as pirates um but there is there is so much importance as we said social cultural stuff embedded in this as well um mm -hmm. because chris has put the last question is why do we need this why do we need this graphic novel about pirates and, and why do we need to know the actual history because it's not just fun is it well look uh a crucial development in the history of piracy took place in 1887 when Robert Louis Stevenson published Treasure Island. And once he did that, pirates entered the imagination of children. And then along came Peter Pan. And then came this raft of Hollywood movies. So, I mean, I've, I've been writing about pirates for a long time. And when you start to talk to people about this subject, you can see in their eyes that they're their their memory of their own childhood is at stake. Like, what were they really? I've I've only just imagined them. So this is the kind of foundation, I think, of the tremendous interest around the world uh, in pirates. People, it's almost an obsession. People are so fascinated with pirates. And they don't know the real history for the most part, but they do have a sense that the rebelliousness of pirates is something that they admire. David alluded to this earlier on. And let me illustrate this by talking a little bit about the meaning of the image that is behind David, the skull and crossbones. Okay. This is the, the famous pirate black flag. It's called the Jolly Roger, right? Well, in the 18th century, Roger was a cant term, meaning a term of the underground, of the poor, of the criminal world, of the kind of dispossessed proletarians. And Roger, to Roger, basically meant to fuck. So when pirates put up a black flag, the message was, fuck you. That's brilliant. That's I love that. I mean, we doing. still use that in Britain. We do still use that as a term. Um, yeah. Well, where I'm from anyway. This is, this is one thing that uh, people find very powerful about pirates. They stood up to the most powerful people of their era. 
who wanted to kill them, each and every one, wanted to annihilate them. The wealthiest people in the world wanted to destroy these pirates, and the pirates looked them right in the eye, and they laughed. They said, we'll have a merry life in a short one, and to hell with you. So uh, so this actually gets back to those social justice themes that David mentioned earlier. I wanted to add that um, that I, I, I feel like um, as the world appears to be lurching towards uh, authoritarianism, um, I feel like our book is um, is a completely contemporary and relevant story and that it's a reminder of a time when people on the bottom rungs of society rose up and uh, acted collectively against all odds and created a democracy. And um, so our book depicts rebellion in action and i feel like that um uh is is a uh, is uh something that uh in the in the it should be of inspiration to modern day activists in the fight against exploitation and um and finally you know the book is a depiction of a resistance to tyranny and it d- displays the um long powerful noble history of of that uh conflict and pirates are an important part of that history and and that's again going back to why would we do this book well because it is a contemporary story in reality uh, because exploitation and authoritarianism hasn't gone away in fact it is always there with us and so it's always good to have a reminder like a book like like ours to where we sit in history and in a medium that is so much fun as well, I think. Yes, exactly. Because I find when I, I've talked to um, uh, history teachers, they find that some some students are unable to read longer texts. And so graphic novels have become extremely important in the process of teaching history and social justice history in particular. And, and, and students are very, um, uh, or young people, I should say, are very much attuned to text and visuals together and so graphic novels uh, accomplish this and so um students are very open to this as a medium and very attracted to it and want it and part of the process of teaching is to have students do their own graphic novels so you can see it's it's somewhat of a democratic form it's not intimidating uh and uh and that's a great thing that's really it it brings people in to exploring history that they may have thought was oh you know too dull and boring to deal with, but we give it in into a context that is really quite, um, you know, uh, understandable and also inviting. And that's that's the nature of graphic novels. Do you guys remember that test you used to have to go through in school where they found out what kind of learner you are? You know, visual, listening uh, and, and all sorts. And I know loads of people, very smart people who just can't read long text and being able to read a graphic novel or listen to a podcast or even listen to a book has helped them a lot and has helped them understand certain things in history. And I find these sorts of mediums really great, especially for young people who are finding it more and more difficult to be able to sit and read a whole book or an academic book or anything. And that's why we do what we do, is to be able to bring history to other people who might not necessarily be able to pick up a book and read the book. Instead, we give them something they can listen to. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. I found this so, I'm so happy. I didn't have to listen to both things. Um, but, <laughs> well, you did. Uh, we we found a way to make you do boaty history without you realising you're doing boaty history. 
exactly because pirates are actually fun. Yeah, and all we have to do is throw in rum, murders, gibbets, and then then you'll sit through it without complaining. Crazy red haired ladies too. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> guys! Congratulations. Uh, this book is out um, at the beginning of next year. Uh, in America and in the spring in the UK. Is there anywhere people can pre-order it now? Uh, yes, it, it, practically every bookseller. It's okay. online, uh, any online seller, you can find it. So under the banner of King Death, do go, we'll put a link, I'll find a link for a bookseller that is not Amazon because Jeff Bezos has got enough money uh, and we will, hopefully bookshop.org have got it. So we'll put it on there and we'll put a link so you can pre-order it because I think a lot of people will be very excited to see what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.